where did the Apostle Paul go when he says he was caught up into the third heaven? That's a good question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Church Questions, a place where listeners like you can ask questions about theology, history, leadership, church culture, or anything else having to do with successful Christian living in today's world. I'm your host, Pastor Don McKegg. Today's question, where did Paul go when he says he was caught up into the third heaven? What a fun question. This is one of those questions, I'll call it an Easter egg. There are these little things all throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, where you're just reading along, you're minding your own business, you're just trying to get some of the goodness of God in you, and then you read something that just knocks you out. I mean, it does. You just go, what did I just read? What what in the world? And you have to do like a literary double take where you go read it again and maybe another time, and it just leaves you scratching your head going, what in the world does that mean? And this idea or this concept of a third heaven being mentioned in the New Testament because that's the thing. Old Testament's kind of a weird place. I don't know how much of the Old Testament you've ever ever read. Some of the Old Testament, kind of a weird place. Third heaven is mentioned in New Testament. This is New Testament phrasing, and it comes from the Apostle Paul, the primary teacher of the New Testament. And, uh, and so we have to figure out what is this what is this third heaven? The other reason I really like this question is this might be one of those super obscure references that a lot of Christians aren't even familiar with. Uh, and the reason why I even bring that up is whenever I was talking to somebody on my team about this question coming up, they had no idea. They had no idea what I was talking about. And these are people, they've been Christians for a long time, been going to church faithfully for a long time. They had just never heard anybody teach on this or never heard anybody mention this or or probably whenever they were reading second corinthians just kind of moved on through it didn't even really pay attention to to what they were reading and second corinthians is is where this is so it's in uh second corinthians 12 starting in verse 1 we'll read it here in just a second um but second corinthians is is one of those books it's just not taught on that often uh, I mean, I am I am the primary teacher at my church. I'm the primary communicator. I've been preaching for a while, um, week in and week out, and I can't really tell you that I've ever spent much time preaching through Second Corinthians. I definitely use certain scriptures in Second Corinthians as a supportive text for the main idea, but I don't really preach from it as the main text too often, and I don't know many that the pastors that do, and and I think that has a lot to do with the nature of what's going on in 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, in contrast, is this beautiful letter about what makes church work and, and the body of Christ and love, and we've got all these wonderful images on, on how to make church function well. But then we get into 2 Corinthians, and the tone changes. And that's because Paul is spending that time talking to some of his critics. He's, he, believe it or not, Paul had critics. There were people during his time that did not like him. They did not like that he took such an authoritative stance, uh, meaning that he, he took authority over uh, churches in a pastoral way. They didn't like how much he was teaching. They, they frankly didn't think that he was qualified to be a teacher, and the evidence that they used is all of the suffering and persecution that Paul faced. And, and Paul admits 
And he admits in 2 Corinthians that he did suffer a lot. There were there were shipwrecks and, and being on islands and snake bites and being stoned. I mean, he had all kinds of, of awful things happen to him. And, and the critics, the idea was this. If God was really with Paul, he would not be suffering the way that he is. And the fact that he is suffering like he is just means God's not with him. Now, as shocking as it might be, to believe now, 2,000 years later, that there were people looking at Paul's life and questioning his commitment to God and his blessing because of the the suffering that he was experiencing, absolutely, 100%, there is a theological persuasion today that thinks the exact same way. Thinks the exact same way. They judge a person's righteousness by how smooth their life is going. If you are healthy, wealthy, and wise, then that means that that you are God's favored. You are you are blessed and highly favored, um, and and great job. And if you are dealing with something, if you are struggling, if you are suffering, that's probably because you have some kind of secret sin that you need to repent of because that secret sin is withholding God's blessing in your life. And all you got to do is figure out what it is and repent of it. And, and then you're, you're smooth sailing. And yeah, if you caught the, you got to figure out what it is as though somebody could be in some kind of chronic sin that is affecting their soul and have no idea what it is. Anyway, this, this was, this way of thinking was not true in Paul's time. And it is certainly not true in our time because to come to that conclusion, we have to ignore a lot of scripture. For instance, Paul, case in point, suffered greatly. Clearly, he was blessed by God. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace has called you to eternal glory in Christ. After you've suffered a little while, suffering was a, was a bygone conclusion. Romans 8, but this is Paul again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's revealed to us. James, brother of Jesus, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, when it has its full effect, will be perfect, um, complete, lacking in nothing. So we absolutely see, and Jesus obviously said, you know, you're going to be persecuted. Jesus suffered, and you think, ah, well, he was supposed to suffer. He was the Messiah. What about the twelve? What about the big 12, the 12 disciples? I mean, okay, Judas Iscariot, he hung himself in the field. What about the other 11? Ten of those guys died young as a result of preaching their faith, and John did not have an easy street life. He, he also suffered, even though he got to live out uh, a long age. So anyway, Paul's ultimate conclusion is to say, yes, I am weak, because these sufferings, he calls them weaknesses. Yes, I am weak, but that's okay, because when I'm weak, God can be made strong. So... I will be weak. I will boast in my weakness so that God can be made strong. That's that's Paul's defense um, in this whole thing. So that's the context going into 2 Corinthians 12. That's given you guys a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look on why he is writing what he is writing. Uh, here's, a, here's a pro tip for you. This one's for free. If you ever read something in Scripture and you have no idea what it means, try to build the context out. What's going on in that passage? What's going on in that full chapter? How does that chapter connect with the chapter before it? Are there other places in the entire book that also deal with that same issue? Are there other places in the rest of that covenant, new or old? 
uh, Testament that deal with that issue? Is there other places in the Bible that deal with it? Just build it out. It's it's rings. Just build the rings out until you start getting some more evidence uh, of what's going on. Um, but that's that's the context. So here we go. Let's finally jump in. Let's finally jump in. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1. This is Paul. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Um, And then, fun fact, as you go on to verse 7, Paul introduces another one of those Easter eggs, his thorn in the flesh. Uh, I'm not going to get into what the thorn in the flesh is in this podcast, because frankly, I would like to make an entire podcast about Paul's thorn in the flesh. So if you would like me to do that, send a question over to questions at donmckeg.com. We'll try to get that podcast up and running pretty soon. So here we read um, in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Well, wait, some of you observant people might be saying, Don, Pastor Don, you said that Paul was caught up into the third heaven, but Paul says he knows a guy that was caught up into the third heaven. Excellent observation if you found that. Here's why I say that Paul was the one caught up into heaven. Most scholars, most scholars agree that Paul is talking about himself right there. He's talking about himself because we can look at the context. Look at verse 1. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven. Pretty clearly he's talking about himself. Sure, there are some people that would disagree, but frankly there's just some people in the world that you can tell them the sky's blue, they'll tell you it's green. You can tell them the sun's hot, they'll tell you it's cold. They just want to disagree. But I'm pretty sure that Paul is talking about uh, himself in this. So most people agree that Paul's talking about himself. What most people don't agree on is why. Why did he do it this way? I'm just giving you a little more fun facts is before we, we jump into the answer of the third heaven. See, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people, they they are working under the assumption that Paul's motivation here is that he is just so extremely humble and pious that he could not bear the idea of his name being associated with going up to the third heaven. And out of extreme humility, he wrote it this way. Everybody knew he was talking about himself, but he needed to write it in a super humble way. I absolutely see this. I absolutely understand that that could be the motivation. That makes a lot of sense to me, though that's not where I lean. I don't think Paul was being so extremely humble here that he couldn't put his name to this wonderful event, I think Paul was being highly sarcastic. Now, I get not everybody likes the idea that our biblical heroes were being sarcastic, but this is something that I do whenever I try to read Scripture. 
I try to remember that these people that we're reading about are not two-dimensional Disney characters that have a very shallow range of emotions, but these are real people dealing with real events in real time. We have the privilege of hindsight, and we can see how things turned out, but Paul was trying to work this out in real time, and he was probably pretty frustrated because Paul started the church in Corinth. So he's these critics aren't just picking on him. Paul started the church that these guys got saved in. He's been traveling the world trying to start other churches just like this one while doing all of this work. He is suffering and in pain and hungry and beaten and sometimes afraid and lonely, and he's really suffering to get the gospel out into the world And these guys, in the comfort of their living rooms, or in the church that Paul started, are looking at what Paul's doing and going, wow, that guy's probably not from God. Look how much he's suffering. We don't suffer at all. We're clearly with God. It's because you're not doing anything, buddy. And so I just, I think... I can see it in Scripture, and maybe you don't just see it necessarily in this one passage. Read the whole context of 11, 12, and some of 13. Read into it, because I think Paul is being sarcastic throughout the whole thing. I think his tone here is kind of like this. They're saying, hey, Paul, you're a, you're not a qualified teacher because you know you've, you keep suffering. And, and he calls them these weaknesses, and he goes, you're right. You're right, guys. I, I am weak. You're right. I probably should stop teaching. And you know what? I would if it wasn't for these visions and revelations that I keep getting. And also, I don't know. Try to help me, guys. This was about 14 years ago. I know a guy. I know a guy. I got a friend. Went up to the third heaven. You remember this guy? I remember this guy. I have a friend. He went up to, to heaven 14 years ago and in the in the in the craziness of this whole thing he saw some things that nobody else saw he heard some things that maybe other people need to hear i don't know you're right i probably should stop teaching and i would if it wasn't for these revelations and visions but since they're here i guess i'll keep teaching i don't again i don't know why i'm going to new york but there we are so I think that's a little bit of the tone. That was just that was that was just just my opinion. That is not necessary to understanding this passage. That is not necessary for a good interpretation. It's not even necessary to believe that Paul's talking about himself. What we see here is an introduction of the third heaven. Well, I will no longer gild the lily and I will tell you what is going on. But I don't want you to turn the podcast off because we want to talk a little bit about some of the other interpretations of this third heaven. So what is the third heaven? I'm just going to get right down to it. The third heaven, let's look at it in Scripture. We see we see that this is paradise. I know a man who was caught up uh, into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. So the third heaven is paradise. This is the same paradise that Jesus is referring to in Luke 24 when he's talking to the thief on the cross next to him. I'll see you in paradise. This is the same paradise that we see in Revelation 2-7. Uh, essentially, those who persevere will end up in 
paradise. In Luke and Revelation, we are looking at that term paradise as an afterlife. We're looking at that as an afterlife concept. We, modern today Christians, would use the term heaven, singular. It's, it's where, do, where do Christian people go when they die? They go to heaven. And there's just one heaven. And we recognize that it's the place where God and the angels dwell. And here's what Orthodox Christianity teaches for the most part. Obviously, there's always outliers, but this is what most people think. God and the angels live in heaven. When a, right, when a person in faith, when a Christian person dies, their earthly body stays here on earth, and their soul goes to be with God and the angels in heaven. Evidence for this is in Philippians 1, starting around verse 21. Paul again says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why? Because if he dies, he says he gets to go be with Jesus. Yeah, well, Don, you just said that that's where God and the angels are. Okay, where's Jesus? Right hand of the Father. Where's where's the Father sitting on his throne? Where's the throne? In heaven. Boom. You die, you get to be with Jesus. Boom. You get to die, and you get to be with God. Also, Jesus is God. So um, that's that's the viewpoint. Um, I'm not going to get farther into you know when Jesus comes back and what happens with New Earth. Not jumping into any of that kind of stuff. Uh, but most Christians are going to teach um, that when a person dies here on Earth, a Christian person, their soul will go be in heaven with Father and angels, and we call that place heaven in the singular. However, in Paul's time and in the Old Testament. They didn't have that terminology. If we will explore particularly into the Old Testament, anytime the word heaven is ever mentioned, it's not mentioned in singular terms. We always mention it in singular terms. Heaven is a place. There is one heaven, it is a place. And because we recognize that heaven is singular and is in, in one place, it kind of messes with us when we read about a third heaven because we go okay are all of these heavens basically the same again are these are these structured is there one heaven but there's three layers well this is just about words this is about word study and understanding the word that the culture was using in the old testament in particular anytime the word heaven was ever used it was always used in the plural heavens multiple heavens the hebrew word for that is shemayim heavens in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens are where the birds are. The heavens are where the bodies, like stars and, and planets, are. The heavens. There's always, it's always, literally always, is it written in multiple terms. And the reason for that is because 2,000 and more years ago, these folks did not have a separate word for sky for outer space, and for God's realm. They just looked up. They didn't have spacecraft. They didn't have airplanes. They didn't have big, tall towers. They didn't have telescopes. All they could do was look up, and what they saw directly above them was where the birds were. Beyond that, they knew there were stars, and then somewhere beyond that was God. And all of that was just heavens, multiple. You looked up, there were three heavens, sky, outer space, 
God's dwelling. So we use all of that now to answer this question for you. When Paul says he was caught up into the third heaven, what's he talking about? God's realm. He's being very specific to say he was caught up into God's realm, the place where God and the angels live. That's where he went. Paradise. The afterlife that Christians are promised they will be able to go to, that's the place where Paul went. And the Old Testament does refer to this place in another instance. Always, always, heavens is plural. It's just up. Most of the time, dramatically most of the time, when you read the word heavens in your Bible, think of sky and outer space. I mean, almost every single time. It's sky and it's outer space. As soon as we get somebody else to make a lengthy commentary and call it a Bible, um, I hope that they can just use the term sky and space rather than heavens. It will, it will really clarify these things. But in the Old Testament, there is a mention of a place that is specific for God and his angels, and it's called the Shammai Shemaim or the highest heaven, or the heaven of heavens. This is the place where God and his angels dwell. We see a reference of this in 1 Kings 8.27. We also see it in Nehemiah 9. There's like four or five different places throughout the Old Testament where Shemai Shemaim is mentioned, this heaven of heavens. There's a heaven above the heavens. There is a highest of the heavens. You have sky, you have outer space, and then you have that place where God and his angels dwell. We don't know where it is. We just know that it's out there somewhere. This is what Paul's talking about. We see it makes sense in Old Testament that there is a distinction between God's realm and the other realms, highest heaven, Shammai Shemaim, and the other heaven, sky and space. Well, that's what Paul's doing when he says third heaven. Jesus and John in his revelation are very clear that paradise, the paradise where God and the angels dwell, that's where believers go. And so all of this is making sense for our context. It would not have confused us. It would not have confused us as readers, modern readers. It would not have confused us because we have a word for sky and space if Paul would have just said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into heaven. That's what he meant to say. But they didn't have a word for sky and they didn't have a word for space, and so he had to find a way to differentiate which heaven he was talking about because he wasn't taken into the sky and he wasn't taken into outer space. He was taken to God's realm. So that's the answer. What is Paul's third heaven? What we call heaven? The place where God and the angels dwell and that whenever we die, we'll be able to go there with him, with God. That's what Paul is talking about. So I hope that answers the question, but I hope you don't click off of the podcast quite yet because I think there's some still some really good things that we can mine out of all of this, which is why, why do people want to overcomplicate or over-mysticize what this third heaven actually is? Because I assure you, 
there are lots of people who want to make this some kind of super mystery or some kind of, oh my goodness, look what I found. Or, wow, I can't believe nobody ever told me about this before. They want to just have this super mystery that they found and and create this really wild doctrine based on a single verse. And I think that's something that I want to I want to pause on for a little bit. This is the only time in Scripture where we have it phrased as a third heaven. Everywhere else in Scripture, it's either phrased as paradise or the Shammai Shemaim, the highest of heavens. Maybe, I don't want to get too lost in this, you could be talking about Abraham's bosom, but really the, the times that we know that we're talking about where God and the angels dwell, it is the heaven of heavens and paradise. The only time that it's ever referred to as third heaven is in Second Corinthians 2. That, that, that's it. That's the only time. The, the fun uh, Latin word for that, by the way, is hapax legamina, when something's in Scripture only one time. Um, but we, we really need to fight these tendencies. And a lot of people have them. Not everybody does, but some people have this tendency to take a really obscure reference in Scripture that something's only mentioned one time and build an entire theology around it. And this, frankly, is just not good academic work. It's, it's just also not good prudence. I mean, if you, if you were—I'm trying to come up with an analogy off the top of my head, so bear with me— but if you were in a court of law, and, and whether you went to jail or not was hinged on one piece of pretty shaky evidence— you probably would be pretty mad if you ended up in jail. It's like, look, that's one piece of pretty shaky evidence. I'm not sure that I should be able... I'm not sure we can support this thing of me going to jail on one piece of shaky evidence. Well, that's what we're doing when we take a single verse out of context sometimes and build this huge theology around it. Because whenever I say that we take it out of context, what I'm talking about is... Paul's point in this passage has nothing to do with the third heaven. He's talking about his visions and revelations. He's talking about all of the things that God has given him, and now he is responsible to that knowledge and information, and that's why he's a teacher. That's the point that Paul's making. He just scoots past. He just scoots right on past this third heaven thing, and if Paul... I mean, this guy will take five chapters to explain an idea. He, he, is, he is not trying to save trees. This guy will make a letter as long as it needs to be, and he will put as many words down to it as he needs to explain his point. So if Paul was trying to drop this nuclear bomb of heaven having three layers, even though nowhere else in Scripture supports it, he would have stopped to explain it. But this third heaven business isn't even the subject. It's not even the point that he's trying to make, meaning he knew that everybody reading that letter would know exactly what he was talking about. There was no question in anybody's mind what this third heaven was. They all clearly understood the first heaven was the sky, the second heaven was outer space, and the third heaven is where the Father and his angels dwell. Everybody knew that. And to and to take 
The third heaven, out of context, is to now overemphasize its importance in the sentence and in the passage and in the idea. It's not the most important part. It's not hardly one of the most important parts at all. But he mentions it. And so we have to deal with it. And it's not that we're going to build some kind of crazy theology now. We just need to know what the third heaven is. What is he explaining? Because everybody else seemed to know. Why don't I know? And there are people that have absolutely built big theology, like important to their faith theology, on this scripture. Mormonism, for instance, comes to mind. Mormons teach that how you act on earth is dependent on which of the three levels of heaven you get to spend eternity in. And if you're super good, you get to go to number three. If you're pretty good, we'll let you into number two. And if you skirt through, well, we're glad you made it to number one. Welcome to the club. And it's not just Mormonism that teaches that. Mormonism teaches it through for the three levels— um, I know a lot of individual people who've come up with this idea on their own. They've not gotten it from a pastor or a reliable source. They've just kind of come up with it on their no- on their own. But a similar theology comes out of Islam. If you've ever heard of the expression seventh heaven, uh, maybe some of you are familiar with the uh, television show from, ooh, I want to say the 90s. Hmm, Jessica Biel, I think that's where she got her start. If you don't know who that is, don't worry about it. She's just an actress. Um but uh, but the funny thing about that show, it was about a preacher. It was about a Christian preacher who had a bunch of kids um, and just the shenanigans of their life. Um, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. But uh, they called it Seventh Heaven, which is absolutely an Islamic doctrine. Um, Islam teaches that there are seven layer levels to heaven, and the seventh one is where God and his angels dwell. And to make it all the way there is the the epitome of paradise. It's It's this... That's as good as it gets. It's the seventh heaven. Um, But what Islam teaches is that, uh, again, how you work on earth is going to depend on where you end up in heaven. And that doesn't surprise me about Islam, because Islam is a works-based faith. Um, You have to do certain things, you have to go to certain places, you have to participate in certain activities to maintain your holiness— um, it's not given to you intrinsically by a savior. It's it's activities that you participate in, and frankly, most religions are that way. So I, I'm just not I'm not picking on Islam. That's just what it is. You have to go to Mecca. You have to pray the prayers. You have to participate in the alms. You have to do the fa- the uh, the fastings. You have to do these things um, in order to maintain your holiness. Um, where Christianity is not based on works um, at all. We are we are completely faith based. Um, Ephesians 2, um, you are saved by grace through faith, so uh, and not by works, so that no one can boast. So the idea is, why are we saved by grace through faith? Um, so that no one can boast. And if I had to draw up an afterlife scenario that was going to cause boasting, it would absolutely be a three-tiered system, so that when everybody gets to the afterlife— you can go, I always knew that guy was a number one. He pretended to be a number two. I knew he was a number one. I'm a number two, however. And then you got these number threes that are just going, oh, the peasants. I see the peasants below us. Uh, we are the threes. 
We're here with Paul. We're here with we're here with John and Peter. We are the threes, and and just this. I don't know. They're probably not being snooty because you know I, I get the argument to get to number three. You have to be humble, and you're not going to be that way. I get that. My point is that works based thinking like that is not really the basis of Christianity. Yes, we have concepts of reward, uh, but nowhere else in Scripture is a tiered system of heaven ever mentioned. Really, everywhere else is either you're in or you're out. It's sheep and goats, wheat, wheats and wheat and tares, um, good fish, bad fish. You know, it, that that's the idea. You're either in heaven or you're not in heaven. And, and really, when you think about it, how would a tiered system even work? Because the the idea is that we're treating God's presence and God's eternal love like a like a space heater, and the closer you are, the warmer you are, and the farther away you get, the 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 less warm it is, and and so the closer you are to God, the better because you get more of that glory, and the farther away that you get, the worse off you are because you get less of that glory. My problem with that way of thinking is that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, always. And so the idea of walking away from God just doesn't make any sense at all. He, I mean, he's literally everywhere. So the only way that the tiered system would work is if God was purposely withholding his glory and love from tiers one and two. So for eternity... God is withholding his his love and glory in tears one and two because you didn't do a good enough job on earth. Also, we can look at scripture to immediately refute this. Back to back to Luke 24 when Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul calls the third heaven paradise. And Jesus says to this guy who's been a Christian for all of about five minutes. I'll see you in the third heaven. How could a guy who spent his entire life as a sinner and a thief do enough in five minutes to earn passage into the into the A game, into varsity? It just doesn't make sense. As soon as you start to think about it and apply scriptural principles, it all falls apart. There is one heaven in the way that we think about it. There is one place that is an afterlife for Christians. It's the same place where God and the angels dwell. We call it heaven, but in 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 Paul's time, they just didn't have the terms for sky and space like we do, so they just called it third heaven. Literally everybody knew what he was talking about. Now here's a fun thing. I'm going to move into some speculation. I'm just going to move into some fun things now at this point, because I asked myself the question, why didn't Paul just use the phrase that everybody else used, Shemai Shemaim? Now, I get that's a Hebrew word, and they're speaking Greek um, or Aramaic. And, uh, and, and so, no, he was in Corinth. They were probably speaking Greek because that's a, that's a Greek Gentile city between Sparta and Athens. Um, so they were, pro- they were speaking Greek, and so the Shemai Shemaim wouldn't have maybe translated necessarily, <clears throat> but it doesn't seem like he even tried. He didn't even try to say highest heaven or something like that. He just used the term third heaven. Now, everybody knew what he was talking about, which is why he didn't have to explain it. Everybody knew that he was talking about the place where God dwells, not the sky, not, uh, not outer space. But where did he get this phrase? And this is the fun, this is the fun part. It's possible, possible with a capital P, 
capital possible. It's possible that he got this phrase from the second book of Enoch. Well, what's the book of Enoch? That's a good question. I will probably go into more detail on Enoch and the books of Enoch uh, if somebody will send a question to questions at donmckeg.com, but I'll give you a little brief synopsis at this point. There are some books, seven of them, I believe, that were written somewhere around the second century that uh, the whoever wrote them claims that these are the stories of Enoch. And Enoch, of course, is one of the great-great-grandpappies of Noah, um, a descendant of Adam. And, and so we have these, these stories of these pretty fantastic things. I mean, we're talking angels and demons. And in second Enoch, Enoch is taken up into the third heaven. These bodies have lifted him into the first heaven, which he identifies as the place where the clouds are or the birds. Then there's a second heaven, but this is not outer space. This is like a dreary place. It's not good. But then he goes to the third heaven, and this is where God and the angels are. Well, a lot of folks are really like curious about these books of Enoch um, and why they're not in Scripture, because Jude actually quotes the first book of Enoch um, in Jude uh, 14 and 15, um, and so you think, well, Jude, Jude quoted Enoch. Um, you know, why isn't Enoch in the Bible? Why isn't it part of canon? Um, well, here's a here's a couple things. First of all, Enoch, none of the books, but particularly First Enoch, and that's kind of the main one. The, the other ones, even two, which I'm about to talk about, or I have talked about with the the third heavens, three heavens. Um, they don't meet the the criteria of canon. There's basically three three things that go into make whether or not something can be canon. Um, but two of the really but but two of the big ones, I guess there's the only three, they're all big, but the two ones that Enoch does not fulfill is one, we don't know who the writer is. We have no idea who wrote this. It was not Enoch. Because for Enoch to have written this would have been thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. Uh, this The e- book of Enoch only came out like 200 years before Jesus was born, at best. So it was not Enoch that wrote it. We have no idea who wrote it. Uh, and really, here's the most important part. Uh, for something to be in canon, to be a part of the Bible, it has to agree doctrinally with the rest of Scripture. And just in... In, in first Enoch alone, maybe second Enoch, I can't remember, it's been a while since I've looked at it. These are short, by the way. These are, these are not long books. Um, there's something like 27 doctrinal discrepancies. It, it, is, it is wildly off base as far as doctrine goes, um, and there's a reason for that. The book of Enoch was not ever supposed to be considered Holy Scripture. What the book books of Enoch are are fairy tales. These are these are stories of fiction. Somebody took biblical characters, biblical ideas, person of Enoch, things like demons, things like angels, and they wrote a story. That's all that it is. We have this idea that because something is old and talks about script and, and talks about religious things, it must be scripture. And so when somebody thinks, oh, well, they didn't include the book of Enoch, 
Uh, those those church leaders and their Illuminati are trying to keep secrets. Ha, gotcha, found it. No, you didn't. If I mean, if the church leaders, if we were trying to hide the book of Enoch, we're doing a bad job. You can just Google search it for free. Like, it's not hard to find it. Um, but there, there's no gotcha. There's no secret scripture that that the Illuminati are keeping for themselves because it's full of these extra pieces of wisdom. The book of Enoch is a story. It's a fairy tale. Because look, we have the same thing happening today. You go into any Christian bookstore, you Amazon search Christian fiction, there's tons, tons of stories that are based around biblical things, but they're not Bible. They're just stories using religious overtones and undertones. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to to pick on it, but I think probably still like the most famous uh, like Christian work of fiction is is the Left Behind series, um, and and these were not works to build theology. These were stories. This this is just these are just they came out of a person's head on on what events might look like. That's the same thing with the Book of Enoch. It's just events of what something might have looked like. So why am I harping on the Book of Enoch? Because it was clearly popular. Jude quoted it. It was something that the pop culture would have been aware of. And, and, and preachers do this all the time, where you quote something from a movie or from a book or something going on in a magazine. We quote pop, pop culture all of the time. So Jude clearly was, was quoting pop culture. And so here's my theory. I tell you all of that to tell you my theory. Though the Book of Enoch, none of the books of Enoch are Scripture— what they could have done as a work of fiction is introduced into the religious culture a phrase, third heaven. Could have introduced the phrase third heaven because Enoch does get that right. That's the place where God and the angels dwell. That matches the Shemai Shemaim. That matches the idea of paradise, that there is a special place that's not sky, that's not space, where God and his angels dwell. Enoch calls it third heaven. It's possible that Paul and, and a lot of the other people that he was talking to just picked up the phrase. It became a helpful phrase. They no longer had to say Shemai Shemaim and try to explain it to a Greek culture. All they had to do was say third heaven, and now everybody understands what he's saying. So that's the, that's the pet theory that I have. How much evidence do I have to support that? As much as I just gave you, so not that much. Because it's also very possible that a very logical Paul just said, well, there's three heavens, sky, space, and where God is, so third heaven, and everybody knew because Paul was a really good teacher. Sometimes simplicity is the answer. I just wanted to throw that in there. So anyway, what? where did Paul go? Where did Paul go when he was caught up into the third heaven? The place that we call heaven. Are there three heavens? Not in that way. There's sky, there's outer space, there's a place where God and the angels dwell. Whenever a Christian person dies, they're going to go to that same heaven. It's referred to as the Shemai Shemaim. It's referred to as paradise. It's a wonderful place full of God's presence. There are no layers to it. There's no score being kept there. You're either in or you're not. But if you're in, then you are in eternally. You are in all the way. 
God's love is sufficient all the way through for the rest of eternity. So that is what the third heaven is. Um, I hope that I didn't burst too many bubbles um, by giving such a practical answer to this. Um, but what I will say is this. There, there is enough mysticism in, in, and that's like an academic term, by the way, mysticism, mysteries, um, the supernatural. There's enough mysticism in the Bible for us to try to wade through that we don't need to start making it up. There are enough difficult things to understand in Scripture that we don't need to start adding any to them. So if at any point we ever get into Scripture and we have the opportunity to create this elaborate theological idea based on very little evidence or hunt and search for a more practical answer, I would encourage you to lean into the practical answer without forgetting the supernatural nature of God. But anyway, that is the third heaven. That is the widely accepted scholastic viewpoint of what this, what these three, what the third heaven is. There are not layers. There's not an earning system. It's just the place that we call heaven. So where did Paul go when he said he was caught up into the third heaven? Regular heaven. And, and just we have a word for sky and space. So that has been the church question of the day. If you would like your church question featured on the podcast, you can send it to questions at donmckeg.com. We'll try to get you on there as soon as we can. Encourage you to go over to donmckeg.com, and if any of the ministry there or here has helped you in any way, I'd appreciate some support. Otherwise, until next time, we will catch you later.